Chapter Two of Shakespeare: Personal Recollections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shakespeare: Personal Recollections by John A. Joyce. Chapter Two: Launched. Apprentice Boy. Ambition. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Will Shakespeare and myself left school when we were fourteen years of age. Our parents, being reduced in worldly circumstances, needed the financial fruits of our labor. Shakespeare was bound to a butcher named John Bull, for a term of three years, while I was put at the trade of stone-cutting with Sam Granite for the same period. Will was one of the finest-looking boys in the town of Stratford, aristocratic by nature, large and noble in appearance, and the pride of all the girls in the country of Warwick, for his fame as a runner, boxer, drinker, dancer, reciter, speaker, hunter, swimmer, and singer, was well known in the surrounding farms and villages, where he had occasion to drive, purchase, and sell meat animals for his butcher-boss, John Bull. Shakespeare's father assisted Bull in selling hides and buying wool. In the winter of 1580, Will and myself joined a new thespian society, organized by the boys and girls of Stratford, with a contingent of theatrical talent from Shottery, Snitterfield, Leicester, Kenilworth, and Coventry. Strolling players, chartered by Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Leicester, often visited Stratford and the surrounding towns, infusing into the young, and even into the old, a desire for that innocent fun of tragic or comic philosophy that wandering minstrels and circus exhibitions generate in the human heart. Plays of Roman, Spanish, and German origin, as well as those of Old Albion, were enacted on our rural stage, and although we had not the paraphernalia and scenery of the London actors, we made up in frantic enthusiasm what we lacked in artistic finish, and often in our amateur exhibitions at balls, fairs, races, and May-day Morris dances, we astonished the natives, who paid from a penny to a sixpence to see and hear the Stratford Oriental Theatrical Company. Shakespeare always took a leading part in every play, poem, and declamation, but when an encore was given and a demand for a recitation on love, Will was in his natural element, and gave the eager audience dashes from Ovid's Metamorphosis or Petrarch's sonnets. The local company had a large assortment of poetic and theatrical translations, and many of the boys and girls who had passed through the Latin school could spout the rhythmic lines of Ovid, Virgil, Horace, or Petrarch in the original language, and, strange to say, the Warwickshire audience would cheer the Latin more than the English rendition, on the principle that the least you know about a thing, the more you enjoy it. Thus pretense and ignorance make a stagger at information, and, while fooling themselves, imagine that they fool their elbow neighbor. Shakespeare had a most marvellous memory, and his sense of taste, smell, feeling, hearing, and particularly seeing was abnormally developed, and constant practice in talking, and copying verses and philosophic sentences, made him almost perfect in his deductions and conclusions. He was a natural orator, and impressed the beholder with his superiority. He had a habit of copying the best verses, dramatic phrases, and orations of ancient authors, and then, to show his superiority of epigrammatic, incisive style, he could paraphrase the poems of other writers into his own divine sentences, using the crude or of Homeric and Platonic philosophy, resolving their thoughts into the best form of classic English, lucid, brave, and blunt. 
I have often tested his powers of lightning observation with each of us, running by shop-windows in Stratford, Oxford, or London, and betting a dinner as to who could name the greatest number of objects, and he invariably could name correctly three to my one. In visiting country farmers, in search of cattle, sheep, or pigs, he could mount a stone fence or climb a hedgerow gate, and by a glance over the field or meadow give the correct number of animals in sight. He was a wonder to the yeomanry of Warwickshire and the surrounding counties, and when he had occasion to rest for the night at farmhouses or taverns, he was the prime favourite of the rural flames or bouncing, beaming barmaid. The girls went wild about him. The physical development of Shakespeare was as noticeable as his mental superiority. Often, when he ploughed the placid waters of the Avon, or buffeted the moaning sea, I have gazed in rapture at his manly Adonis form, standing on the sands like a Grecian wrestler, waiting for the laurel crown of the Olympic Games. Great Shakespeare was endowed with heavenly light. He read the book of nature day and night, and delving through the strata of mankind, divined the thoughts that thrilled the mystic mind, and felt the pulse of all the human race, while from their beating heart could surely trace the various passions that inspire the soul around this breathing world from pole to pole. My family and the Hathaway household were on familiar terms, for my father at times worked an adjoining estate at the edge of the village of Shottery, a straggling community of farmers and tradesmen, with the usual wheelwright, blacksmith shop, corn and meat store, and alehouse attachments. William, in his rural perambulations, often put up for the night at our cottage, and as there was generally some fun going on in the neighbourhood after dark, I led him into many frolics with the boys and girls. I can assure you he was a rusher with the fair sex, capturing the plums that fell from the tree of beauty and passion. On a certain moonlight night, in the month of May, 1581, a large concourse of rural bells and bows assembled at the home of John Dryden, washed by the waters of the Avon, and thrilled by the songs of the nightingales, thrushes and larks, lending enchantments to the flitting hours. Stratford, Snitterfield, Wilmcote, and Shottery sent their contingent of roistering boys and girls to enjoy the moonlight lawn-dance and rural feast, set out under flowery bowers by the generous Dryden. It would have done your heart good to see the variegated dresses, antics, and faces of the happy rural bells. I see them as plain as ever in the looking-glass of memory. There is Laura Combs, plump and intelligent, Mary Scott, willowy and keen, Jenny Field, sedate and sterling, Mary Hall, musical and handsome, Annie Condell, modest and benevolent, Joyce Action, witty and aristocratic, Lizzie Hemming, bouncing and beaming, Fanny Hunt, stately and kind, while Anne Hathaway, the big girl of the party, seemed to be the leader in all the innocent mischief of the evening. William took a particular liking to the push-and-go of Anne, and she seemed to concentrate her gaze on his robust form at first sight. William asked me, as the friend of the family, to introduce him to Miss Hathaway, which I did in my best words, and away they went, on a hop, step, and a jump through the Morris dance that was just then being enacted on the lawn. The clarion notes of the farm-cocks were saluting the rosy footsteps of the dawn when the various parties dispersed for home. The last I saw of William he was helping Miss Hathaway over the rustic stile and hedgerow that rimmed the old thatched cottage home of his newly found flame. It was a frigid day or night when William could not find something fresh and new among the fairer sex, and like a king-bee in a field of wild-flowers, he sipped the nectar of love and beauty, and tossed carking care to the vagrant winds. It was soon after this moonlight party that a picnic revel was given in the domain of Sir Hugh Clopton, 
near the old mill and stone bridge erected by that generous public benefactor. The boys and girls of the town turned out en masse, and enjoyed the hawking, hunting, swimming, dancing, archery, and boating that prevailed that day. In the midst of the festivities, while a long line of rural beauties and beaux were prancing and rollicking on the bridge, a scream and a flash of Dolly Varden dress in the river showed the struggling efforts of Anne Hathaway to keep her head above water. One glance at the pride of his heart, struggling for her life, determined the soul of the athlete, when he plunged into the running stream, caught the arm of his adored as she was going down for the third time, and then, with a few mighty sweeps of his brawny arm, he reached the shore and heaved her on the sands in an almost lifeless condition. She was soon restored, however, by her numerous companions, with only the loss of a few ribbons and bunches of hawthorn blossoms that William had tied in her golden hair that morning. William was the hero of the day, and his fame for bravery rung on the lips of the Warwickshire yeomanry, while in the heart of Anne Hathaway devotion reigned supreme. There is no love broker in the world can more prevail in man's commendation with woman than report of valour. The courtship of William and Anne was rapid, and although her father died only a few months before, on the 27th of November, 1582, license to marry was suddenly obtained through the insistence of the yeoman friends of the Hathaway family, Fook Sandals and John Richardson, who convinced the Lord Bishop of Worcester that one calling of the bands of matrimony was only necessary. William left his home in Stratford immediately, and took charge of Anne's cottage and farm, settling down as soon as one of his rollicking nature could realize that he had been virtually forced into marrying a buxom girl, eight years older than himself, and a woman of hot temper. Six months after marriage, Susanna, his daughter, was born, and about two years after, February 2, 1585, his twin children, Hammett and Judith, were ushered into his cottage home, as new pledges of matrimonial felicity. Things did not move on with William as happily after marriage as before, and while his wife did most of the work, the bard of nature preferred to shirk hard labor in field and wood, longing constantly to meet the boys at the tavern, or fish, sing, hunt, and poach along the Avon. Yoking Pegasus to a Flanders mare would be about as reasonable as join a practical, honest woman with a poet. Water and hot oil will not mix, and the fires of genius cannot be curbed or subdued by material surroundings. Beef cannot appreciate brains. Anne was constantly sandpapering William about his vagabond life, and holding up the picture of ruin for her ancestral estate, by his thoughtless extravagance and determination to attend to other people's business instead of his own. As the wife was senior and business boss, the bard endured these certain lectures with meekness and surface sorrow and promises of reformation, but when out of her sight continued in the same old rut of playing the clown and philosopher for the public amusement. How hard it is to hide the spark of nature! End of chapter 2